you please find Psalm 51? To prepare our minds for the exposition of the word. And remain undistracted. Follow along with me as I read Psalm 51. It says, For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came in after he had gone into Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to your greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Please be seated. This lengthy and deep and solemn prayer was written by a man who was crushed, broken, and sorrowful because of some very gross sin. Psalm 51 was written in response to the divine chastening we read about in 2 Samuel 12, Verses 1 to 15. Last week I read that portion in its entirety, but today I won't for the sake of time. But for those who may have missed last week or were a bit distracted or maybe you're not too familiar with the sin of David, let me summarize. David was elected by Yahweh, selected, hand-picked by the true God to become the king of his own people, chosen as a royal priesthood to function as a light to the pagan community and pagan world. 
we read that David was a man after God's own heart. And Paul, in the book of Acts, repeats that truth. In Acts 13.22, he says, After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. David rose to great power and influence. He was a skilled military commander and skilled warrior. He was also a sound spiritual leader. But like all men, he was fallible. Having the same exact human nature as you and I. So he battled his sin daily, like you and I. He made mistakes frequently, like you and I. He hoped in God, like I assume you and I do. And perhaps, like you and I, he had some humiliating skeletons in his closet. But unlike you and I, his skeletons came out of the closet for the world to see. And by the way, keep in mind that it was God who exposed it. The skeletons I speak of are coveting his neighbor's wife, committing adultery, bearing false witness, and murdering. Now here's the question that we struggle with after reading 2 Samuel 11 and 12. How could God still call David a man after his own heart after David had committed such terrible sins? Doesn't the Bible say and imply over and over again that a true lover of God is marked by love, obedience, faithfulness, gentleness and such? I mean, ladies, if, if a Christian in the government had your husband murdered, would you start thinking he really loved God? How do we reconcile David's actions in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 with texts like 1 John 3.15, which says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. David murdered. Does that mean he lost his heart for God and therefore lost his eternal life? Well, the answer is no, because he repented. And we know that the repentant one can find forgiveness and peace and reconciliation with God. No matter what sins he committed. And we know for certain that David did, in fact, repent because we have Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, it's revealed that David's response to the expose of his sin was godly or God-word repentance. And repentance simply means change of the mind. To change the mind. We change our minds all the time, don't we? And with regard to your sin, you must change your mind with regard to what you think about your sin and start thinking about what God thinks about your sin. By learning and applying this wonderful piece of poetry, 
Brothers and sisters, you can be restored to God after you sin, no matter how horrible it is or even how trivial it is. We still got to repent. The psalm can be divided into five parts, each revealing a distinct facet of true upward godly repentance. And now you need to understand these five facets very clearly. Number one, so you can discern the difference between, between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. And two, so, you can know how to be, so that you can know how to be reconciled with God when you sin. Last week we covered the first two facets. The first was a plea for divine pity in verse 1. The second was a plea for spiritual cleansing, which we see in verses 2 and 7. Now, take special note that these first two facets of godly repentance are in the form of a plea. And now note the second or the next two, the third and fourth facets, are both in the form of a confession. So this morning, we're going to be talking about confession. The third facet of true godly repentance is a confession of personal guilt. Look in verses 3 and 4. David says, I know my transgressions. In his prayer, he says he knows his transgressions. How does he know his transgressions? Number one, because of his conscience. And number two, the word of God has testified against him. And he says, my sin is ever before me. Here, David is saying, Yahweh, I cannot get this sin out of my mind. When I wake up, it is glaring at me right in the face. I cannot forget it. It is gnawing on my conscience. David is telling God that his unconfessed sin just won't let up it's, and it's tearing him up inside can you relate has your sin ever haunted you have you ever committed a sin and the holy spirit just won't let you move on or brothers and sisters can you sin and not have any conviction at all or maybe you're very good at saying look at so-and-so's sin but failing to see your own sin. Notice more closely, David said, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And to be honest with you all, I'm afraid that many Christians replace my with someone else's name. Here's the reason why I elaborate on this point. Because we all need to focus on our own sin. And we need to worry less about someone else's sin. In other words, we need to focus more on pointing the thumb and less on pointing the finger. My high school f- football coach taught me that. And I don't know if he was trying to teach us the Bible, but if he didn't, he did it unknowingly. 
because that is a biblical idea. Christians should be thumb pointers, not finger pointers. If we all focus on our sin, as Jesus said, to take the plank out of our own eye, then I think there would be a lot more humility to be found in churches. In verse 4, David says something very interesting. He says, against you, emphasis, you only, I have sinned. David realized what every believer seeking forgiveness must, that even though he had immensely wronged Bathsheba and Uriah, his ultimate crime was against God. His ultimate crime was against God, which he also confessed in 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven. And now this is a commonly overlooked nuance in dealing with sin biblically. Listen very carefully. One main difference between worldly or false repentance or sorrow and godly repentance is whatever the sinner focuses on. The person who, who is chiefly concerned with the consequences because he got caught is experiencing worldly repentance, worldly sorrow. The truly repentant person is chiefly concerned with offending God and breaking intimate fellowship with Him. So understand then that when you sin against somebody, don't take that lightly. But what's most vital is how it affects your relationship with God. Notice that David did not even mention Bathsheba or Uriah's Name one time. Why? Because David loved God too much. Think of anything else. Think of the hyperbolic statement that Jesus made in the Gospels. He said, unless you hate your mother and father, you are not worthy of me. Obviously, Jesus isn't telling us to hate our parents. He's meaning to, 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 to help us understand that our love for God should be so much higher and deeper and more profound to where our feelings toward someone else is incomparable. Now, I want you to notice something else in verse 4. He said, I have sinned. Since I'm a great sinner, I can imagine the weight that was lifted off of David's shoulders upon making this confession. No doubt his sin was hanging over his head like a dark cloud. And, you know, he said, my sin is ever before me. Until he spoke those three little words. I have sinned. The simple statement is really the key to unlocking the access to God's amazing grace. And without it, there is no forgiveness. In other words, what I'm saying is that confession to God is absolutely necessary, first and foremost, in order to be saved, right? 
How do you how do you define conf- confession biblically? Before I answer that, I, I feel inclined to mention that it's not a sacrament. It's not a religious ritual done by a man with a title of priest because, number one, there are no more priests. We all have access to God through Christ. Therefore, priests are irrelevant in the New Covenant. Amen? And number two, the Bible says that there is only one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So understand that when we talk talk of confession, it has nothing at all to do with going to someone else. We mean going directly to God. Now here's what confession means. Simply put, you're saying the same thing about your sin that God does. You're owning up to it. You're agreeing with God that what you did was wrong. And confession is not only necessary in order to be saved, to be forgiven. It's also necessary in order to restore fellowship with God after you sin. And I think that makes sense to us probably a little bit more than the former aspect because... For example, when you sin against your spouse, she she expects you to admit you're wrong. Right? I mean, when, when, I, when I do something stupid, Jen, Jen expects me to say I was wrong. And, and then when I say, I'm sorry, babe, that was wrong of me, then, then that wall goes down. And then you reconcile. And relationship is repaired. It's similar to that with your vertical relationship. Meaning that when you disobey the law of God, you put a wall up between you and God. Therefore, it needs to be broken down. And the way you do that is via confession. Now, maybe you're thinking, okay, where in the world are you getting this, bro? This whole doctrine that even though I'm saved by grace through faith alone and Christ alone, my sin still separates me from God? Where are you getting that? Well, first of all, David would have known about the fall. And let me remind you that all it took was one bite of one piece of fruit to sever Yahweh's close, intimate walk with Adam and Eve. But then we get to pre-exilic Israel. And then we read Isaiah. Isaiah told pre-exilic Israel, God's people, God's covenant people, but your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Husbands, listen up. With regard to marriage, do you want, do you want to know the scariest verse in the Bible for husbands? 1 Peter 3, 7. You know, all that stuff about loving your wife? That, that's not too hard. We get that. We hear that all the time. But here's what you don't hear all the time. 
show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Why? To make her feel good? Well, that might be an effect of it. No. We show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers, men, will not be hindered. Isn't, isn't that convicting? God may turn his ear from you, men, if you do not show your wife honor. So you see how it's very clear in the Bible that personal sin can have an adverse effect in your relationship with God. You can can build a barrier, that wall. And the way to repair that relationship with the God that you love is to confess like David. He continues praying. Remember, this is all one long prayer. He says, I have done what is evil in your sight. Note that he says, God's sight, not man's. God's law is our standard, not men's. David is simply saying again that he's agreeing with what God thinks about his sin. Recall the words written in 2 Samuel 11.27. After we read about all David's sin, it says the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. The word evil, it adds to this great confession and such that it highlights the pain and harm and destruction that transgressions bring spiritually and earthly so brothers and sisters when you confess your sin to god do you admit that your sin is evil that's part of it this recognition of his sin being evil is Further clarified in the second half of verse 4. Look at that. It says, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. What does that mean? What does it have to do with God or, or, or David's confession? Well, according to one commentator in this verse, he's simply saying that by confessing his sin, David is submitting to whatever God's will is for him. It is God's will to reveal himself. And in his revelation, he rightly says what's right and wrong. And when he judges, and he does, he judges rightly because he is God. God is by nature true and just and righteous. Then when he judges, he is right. And David is just saying, Lord, if that's what you do, then amen. And so, in essence, what we can gather from verses 3 and 4 to summarize is this. It's very important for us to understand this. The sin that David committed was sin primarily because it was against God's law. And when you confess in your repentance, you are agreeing with God for what it really is. Evil. Now, I love you enough to tell you this. It takes a lot of love for me to stand up here and tell you hard things week after week. I belabor this because I've been around Christians a lot the past 10 years in many different contexts, and I have never once heard anyone 
confess that their sin is evil. In fact, I had to repent of failing to do that. So when you pray, pray in this way. Today, before the Lord's Supper, admit to God that your sin is evil. Because it's biblical. The fourth facet of godly repentance is another confession, which reveals that we are not sinners because we sin. The reverse is true. We sin because we're sinners. And you'll see what I mean by this in a second. The fourth facet of godly repentance is a confession of moral impotence. Moral impotence. Look at verse 5. David wrote, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, it's important to clarify what David is not saying here. David is not saying that he was born out of wedlock, nor is he saying that conception resulted from an adulterous relationship. That's not what he's saying. He is saying that the moment he was conceived, listen, there was the transferring to him the sin nature of Adam. He is confirming just how human he was. And now think about who David is again. He is the richest and most powerful king on the planet at this time. Who else in the Bible does God say, this man is after my own heart? So think of the humility that God gave David to even confess this. David is saying that he was born with a sinful character. He was born already having a corrupt heart, naturally wanting to rebel. He was affirming from the very beginning of his existence in the womb that there had never been a time that he did not have a sinful state. And by saying, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me, he acknowledged that his sin was not God's fault. Rather, the source of David's sin came out of or originated in his own rebellious, natural disposition. Therefore, he is 100% culpable for every sin. This is called the doctrine of total depravity. This is called the doctrine of total inability or absolute inability. It explains why people, particularly children, why they behave the way they do, and it exclaims, it preaches the need for sovereign regenerative grace. Now, just to be clear, this does not mean that a newborn baby is a vile, little, wicked sinner. But listen, it does mean that if the baby's condition goes unchanged, he or she will naturally lead to acts of sin. Have you ever wondered why you don't have to teach your child to lie? They already know how to do that. Have you ever wondered why you don't have to teach your child to be self-centered? They already know that. 
Have you ever just watched in awe a small child become violently angry because you told him it's time to go home? If you don't have kids yet, you will. And you'll stand there and be like, really? That's Where does that come from? Well, it's because of what David is saying. We were all brought forth in iniquity. We were all born with a depraved heart, unable to obey God. Therefore, children must be transformed and regenerated by the Holy Spirit through the knowledge of the one true gospel. We can all to a degree think of instances where we battle against our own thought life and speech pattern and regular conduct and echo the words of Paul, Romans 7. I'm doing the very things I hate, Paul wrote. Why do we find ourselves doing the very thing we hate? Well, it's because because of the remnant of our sinful nature, which will not be glorified, which will not be eradicated until glorification. This doctrine also reveals and highlights the need for redemption for every single soul under the sun. Because all are in sin since that first breath of air. And brothers and sisters, like David, this applies to you as well. You too were born with an innate desire to wholly devote yourself to sin. That's why you think the thoughts you think. That's why the, you do the deeds you do. That's why you say the words you say. That's why you crave the things you crave. We were born with that craving. And that's it. That's all we craved. Puritan Thomas Brooks said that till men have faith in Christ, their best services are but glorious sins. Because until Christ transforms a sinner, that's all we care about, that's all we want to do, that's all we can do is sin. Now to illustrate this doctrine more vividly, imagine someone invented a mechanism and was able to record every thought you ever thought, every word you ever uttered, and every deed you ever did, whether it's behind closed doors or out in the open. Are you getting scared yet? And then this recording mechanism produced a mass quantity of films that could therefore be broadcasted for all the world to see. And then you're going about your business one day, and all of a sudden you see your face plastered all over TV and every newspaper and every website. And it says, click here to see every thought you ever thought in your life. In plain view. How would you respond to that? 
as you're standing there being mesmerized by all of the images on the screen that are broadcasting every thought you ever thought, what would you do? Well, I know what you would do. You would do the same thing I would do, and you would jet. You would run away, and you would hide, and you would do everything within your power to avoid human contact for the rest of your life. Wouldn't you? But that's all of us. It's because our heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? But brothers and sisters, I don't teach you this to make you feel sorry for yourself. I don't teach you this to make you feel down. I teach you this so that, number one, you will love your Savior even more. And that so you will be humble. If you understand the love of Christ, you need to get a grip of the magnitude and gravitas of what Jesus paid for. He paid for every single thought, every single deed, every single word of every single man, woman, and child that was chosen before the foundation of the world. That's an infinite number of transgressions. Infinite. You can't put a number on it. And that's why he had to be God. An infinite number of sins committed against an infinite God requires an infinite sacrifice. That means you could never pay for your sin, right? That means the only hope is in the gospel. And if Jesus is not God, which many cults and religions say, then you have an insufficient, vicarious substitute. You have a false gospel. No hope. So understand that Jesus paid for in full, not in part, the sin of the elect, which means every single thought, word, and deed committed in the flesh, then right now and later, was atoned for. Is that still amazing? If you don't think that's amazing still, then you still don't quite get the magnitude of your sin. So when the Spirit convicts you to repent, admit to God that on your own, It's impossible to please him because of the natural, human, moral impotence we all possess. Verse 6 provides a contrast to verse 5. Though David had always been in a state of sin, God always prepared him for truth and wisdom. This is where we see the grace of God again in the psalm. It says, Behold, you desire truth in the inward, in the, in the innermost being. And in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Notice how David continues with the obvious theocentric tone. He's still putting himself in a passive position. Notice he says, You desire. You will make me to know wisdom. It's not I will make myself know 
Because the natural man, again, on his own, is enslaved to sin and is ignorant of the truth and is incapable of applying God's law consistently and skillfully, which is wisdom. But despite the human condition, God in his loving kindness made David knowledgeable and wise. For God to desire a rebellious man like David to know truth and to rightly apply it is grace beyond comprehension. Because like you and I, he didn't get what he deserved. God would have been just and righteous to leave him in his sin and in darkness. But instead, he chose to provide a way for sinners to be restored to him. And that way is to truly repent. God would have been, let me say again, God would have been just and righteous to leave us all in our sin that we were naturally born into. But he didn't. Why didn't he? That's where the love comes in. Because he loved us. He chose us. By his grace. That's why we can say amazing grace. That's what should come into your mind. That we were born in sin. Having only the desire and ability to sin. We were all on our way to hell. We were all like sheep, have gone astray, but for no reason other than love and grace, God chose to save. Not because we were lovable, not because we deserved it, just because he chose to. But the way to be reconciled is to repent. Must repent. That involves a plea for divine pity, plea for spiritual cleansing, a confession of personal guilt, and a confession of moral impotence. Now, I've asked this question for myself already lest I step in this pulpit and preach as a hypocrite so I ask this having already asked myself what sin do you need to repent of today what sin if you don't know ask God to convict you ask him to reveal it to your heart go to him like David did Plea for pity. Plea for cleansing. Confess your sin and confess your inability and need for him to help.